I mean, when it was fast paced and you're missing planes and you're just like not caring and you're trashing things and you've gotten a lot of trouble, heaps of trouble. Is that just because, you know, you'd got so much fame so quickly out of out of these hits? And No, I think you're just really drunk. That's Ilan Kidron. He's an ARIA award-winning singer-songwriter responsible for writing hit anthems for Aussie dance music pioneers, the Pop Bellies, and plenty of tracks for big-name artists. The social Experiment with Chance the Rapper and then Rita Ora and Kygo and all these great Chris Brown. Ilan has lived the dream, enjoying an action-packed life on the road for many years that's brought him great success, but he's also had to endure immeasurable pain. Ilan's wife took her own life in 2017, leaving he and his two children to pick up the pieces. That's probably the hardest bit, is not being able to answer the questions that are impossible to answer. What could I have done? Why did I do this? Um, what were the last, you know, few hours of her life like? You know, all these things that are just so torturous. Coping with such trauma while being a father has been confusing and unimaginably difficult for Alan, but despite it all, he still focuses on all the good in the world, passionately living a full life with the belief that nothing is impossible. I think it's a good sign to show people beauty can come from horror and things like that and there's you know ways to work through life that make you stronger and make you better welcome to young blood a podcast all about young men's health my name's callum mcpherson i'm a journalist and this is our mission to talk about the stuff that matters and isn't talked about enough let's do it uh so ilan where does your love of music come from great question i think probably you know, one of the first things that happened to us is is, is we hear our mother's heartbeat, <laughs> if you want to get deep, you know, in there and there's a rhythm to it. Uh, me personally, I was introduced to music very early on. Um, my parents kind of forced me into doing it until I was about 15, 16, and then I just decided that I liked it, so I did it on my own. They made me learn the flute, which I hated, um, which I thought was, um, you know, a very effeminate, kind of choice uh, but it turned out that um that girls actually liked guys that played flute so I oh continued. really i wasn't aware of that it was like a point of difference it was, like <laughs> it was your it, that was your sensitive side you're making that really uh apparent like yeah something like that and then anyway it continued um you know throughout i was introduced to music from other cultures at a very young age, classical music, and um, just through the fortunate kind of, uh, you know, my parents introducing and kind of making, uh, treating music like it was as important as any other subject like maths or science or anything. That Were they music. musicians as well? No, but super artistic. Like dad's an architect, mum's a teacher, but they never got that kind of opportunity to express themselves. So I guess they pushed me and my brother into it. My brother's a good musician as well. He's got crazy ears. He can hear things and just play it. What power have you been able to draw from music throughout your life? Gee, these are strong questions. It's been, you know, music, if you want to get kind of poetic about it, it's been a mirror uh, in a big way. You know, you, you um, become better at your awareness and how you're feeling it's the opposite of an iPhone. You know, your iPhone, your your you think that there's this true reflection coming back and that you're, you know, constantly feeding off, you know, whatever's there. But music, you have to really um, trust and um, 
throw yourself into the power of it, I guess, you know, the more you work at it, it's like anything. I mean, you look like you exercise, you know, and the more you exercise, the more gains you have. And with music, it's the same thing. And there's no limit. There's just no limit as to what you can learn and how you can communicate. The main one is, and that I struggle with still, is the listening part. I can listen when I'm jamming and I love it. I love being aware of what's going on. But in conversations, I'm, I'm very activated, <laughs> so I'll cut people off and things like that. And that's something that music can teach you is to not cut off and just be exist within a, a world together. So the power of music is, you know, although it's fantastically wonderful when you're on your own and you're able to compose and write, it's also just unbelievably strong when you're doing it with other people. Um, and I love it. I love the jam. And when did you realise that you could make a career out of it? It just kind of slowly happened. Like I didn't make a career out of it until I was 28, 30. So I was quite late-ish because um, I was doing other things. I was working cafes. I was busy going to castings and doing, as, as an actor, doing commercials. Yep. It was weird. I'm a terrible actor as well. I can't hold a straight face. But for some reason I was this kind of animated dude that could sell pizza. <laughs> They love it. Oh, I had a great time doing it. I toured. I, I went away and and did um, what was in the Cook Islands. I did a commercial for an English insurance company. I went to Malaysia and did a Pepsi commercial all over Australia. I was in Home and Away a couple of episodes as well. It did you have so, any lines? Heaps of lines. I wasn't an extra. It yeah, was, all right. Well, pa- was, that pays pretty well. So I was the hero. It paid really well. It was amazing. I did it throughout uni. That's what I did. Okay, nice. So you're, you've always been a performer in some respect. And craving that connection with people. Yeah. You know, wanting the bounce, wanting the ego filled and wanting, but also kind of in a, not a sexually seductive way, but in a personality kind of seductive way, wanting to draw people in, understand me and allow them to understand themselves. And did you write music the whole way through or... Were you just like playing instruments or have you always written songs? I remember writing really bad songs. Love songs? <laughs> no, angry songs. Yeah. I loved like Soundgarden and punk and Nirvana and whatever. I grew up on the on the grunge. So, no, there weren't many loves. Oh, no, there were love songs as well. <laughs> but, but mainly. Did you think they were good at the time? <laughs> yeah. And I showed them off and I don't think I got much response. And then, you know, we had cassette players, so I'd record them on cassette and listen back. Now I still got some of them and they're just. Shit, back in the day. My grandma likes them though. (laughs) What was the like first song that you wrote for another artist? Well, I guess, you know, when I sat down with the Potbellies um, and we wrote a song called Dirty Dreams, I, I, I wasn't thinking that it was my song. They were like guiding the whole session. They just wanted dance tracks. And I, I hated dance music at the time. I didn't understand house music or anything. I was more of a kind of rocky, jazzy dude yeah. uh, who loved 60s music and 70s music and classical stuff and just and smoked weed and just wanted, you know, I wasn't <laughs> into the whole club scene at all. Yeah, you just wanted um, to chill. Chill or just make music that was kind of a bit more intellectual or whatever. Yeah. But you find ways of communicating that, don't need to be so thought out and intellectual, but they can come from a really pure, real 
um, raw kind of state. Um, and that's what we were doing in the potbelly is we were taking some of the information that I'd learned and then just putting it through um, and writing songs that were kind of like a weird mix, you know, of dance music and grunge, I guess. Because you, like you, you were part of writing some of their, their biggest hits, weren't you? I wrote all the hits, yeah. yeah. How did yeah. you come to meet those guys? In a club. In a club. I just got up and started singing with them at some point. Um, and then within two weeks we wrote our biggest hit at Don't Hold Back. And then we will come, so like that went triple platinum. And then, and then, you know, like the, the next few songs did well. Like we got gold records and more platinum records and everything, but they ne- it never quite, yeah, like, it, was, it was ridiculous. You set the standard too high. But yeah. I'm happy to say we weren't one hit wonders, but it, it was pretty ridiculous what happened. It was basically, I always describe it as a shotgun wedding. Like I met these two dudes. Yeah. It could have been in Vegas. And then overnight. Yeah. And then all of a sudden we're married, living with each other for the next 12 years, um, you know, and just going through everything that a married couple probably would. And so is, minus, is, is that how long you guys were, were traveling? And It was about 12 now, but we yeah. were trucking for about eight. Wow. So heavy. Like just on the road the, most of the time? On the road three days a week on average, I'd yeah. say, about eight years. Far out. Gosh. Mm. And so what was, uh, what was that experience like? Where did that take you? Rollercoastering, you know, up and down. The hardest part, I guess, was <clears throat> for the people who weren't on the road. Yeah. You know, people like family or, um, you know, you'd come back from this spaceship experience every week and try and land it and get on the same wavelength as, as he's supposed to be living with. But your family becomes like this, I guess, a luxury of some sort. It does, it's not your life. And yeah. Your life split, I guess. And what, yeah. what was it like for you being part of, of that world, not just with the pop bellies, but I suppose being in, in the music industry throughout and cause it's sort of extraordinary. Yeah. I've been really lucky. I mean, I've got really good friends there as well still. And because you, you know, in order to push through write music that people can relate to and, and do important like things like, <laughs> Like get smashed and make people have a really good time. <laughs> you, tend to, you tend to meet people who are in it for the right reasons as well. You obviously come by a lot of cowboys and people who aren't in it for the right reasons, but they sort of get put, pushed to the side. You're not really interested in working with them too much. Like if, if I get in a room with an artist and I'm writing a song with them and I have a beautiful day, which by the way is by far the most important reason I write, is to have a good experience, not to write a brilliant song. And if you're making... Uh, music for people to get smashed and have a good time to, you're probably getting smashed and having a good time a fair bit as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But it, after a few years of it, it wears super thin. Yeah. It like means nothing. And oh, and like pretty taxing on your, on your mind and your body as on, well. I was like, yeah, on the mind, certainly on the body, like as well, but I was the one in the, uh, in the band who was always waking up early and, you know, doing stuff, surfing and going for a jog. And I guess like the rest of the crew would all be hungover and then they'd be like, where, they would wake up where's, at the where's Ilan? And be like, oh, he's off at some yoga class again. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, yeah. But I'd also meet like the Soundies, often the crew when you're touring around regional around the coast, you know, the Soundies will often be surfers and, and be able to lend you a wetsuit or whatever and you go out surfing and meet, you know, people along the way. Incredible. So it's not just about the music and the live element. It's about relationships and building things. So for you, did it feel like it was 
fast paced and high pressure or it didn't really trouble you? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when it was fast paced and you're missing planes and you're just like not caring and you're trashing things and we've gotten a lot of trouble, heaps of trouble. What did you do? We were kind of arrogant and just silly. You know, we, we'd get these huge corporate gigs and just make a mockery of them. Um, you know, we did this one for this umbrella group of advertising agencies and we just lost our minds on stage. <laughs> Started just calling them wankers and yuppies, which they weren't. I mean, they're just doing their job and they're there. Some of them indeed probably are. But, you know, we were the ones that were actually behaving like tossers. Yeah. <laughs> but just don't realise. And is that just because, you know, you'd got so much uh, sort of fame so quickly out of out of these hits. And, no, I think uh, you're just really drunk. Yeah, right. <laughs> okay. and, and music is propelling you there. And, well, it ends up exploding on stage in ways that you can't really control sometimes. Yeah, okay. But, okay. but our music is super suited to ads as with like, you know, the, the Don't Hold Back campaign for, for Jeep and things like that. So we, we did write music that people relate to and that kind of can adhere to a product of sort, but we never sought that kind of stuff. We never sat down and went, will this fit on a car commercial? But we did sometimes sit down and go and ask ourselves whether it had the G-force. We used to call it the G-force, the girls and the grannies yeah. and gays. Will it fit <laughs> within that framework, this song? Uh-huh. And if it didn't, if it was lacking two of them, we wouldn't release it. Okay, right. Yeah. Because we just did, we didn't chase the, like, the tough audience. We weren't after like, yeah. you know, the whole heavy bounce Melbourne scene or yep. you know, what the presets were doing. You know, we just wanted to write fun stuff and the, the kind of connect to the heart more than anything. Well, you definitely did that. I just remember Potbelly's being absolutely massive and one of those groups that like everyone liked, uh, which is pretty rare. I'm not sure about that. Well, yeah. well, unless they knew you by the sounds of things. <laughs> oh, no, it was lovely, man. It was just an occasion that we kind of blew up in people's faces. No, no, not at all. I don't think we behaved like... Yeah, but I mean, you guys are making hit dance music. It's kind of to be expected, really. Isn't yeah. It? yeah, I think so. Yeah. Uh, what about the instability, though, of that lifestyle and, you know, being on the road all the time and then being away from family and that sort of thing? Did that wear on you? Yeah, yeah, certainly. Certainly. It wore on me, it wore on my family, and it wore on the members of the band. You know, when you're together for a long time and there's substance abuse or there's. Um, <clears throat> There's late nights continuously, you're losing sleep, you're losing, you know, focus. Everything is, you know, you see shocking examples of it in people like Avicii or, you know, this people fall by the wayside. Good friends have, you know, ended their lives or, um, you know, my wife as well ended hers. Um, but that's, you know, every situation, I guess, is very different. Um, you can't draw all of it into one thing. Oh, that's because, you know, you were on the road or, you know, you weren't around your family enough. Um, but it, life does get confusing when you don't have regularity. I mean, it's the same for kids. You want to bring up kids going to sleep at the same time, you want them going to the same school every day. I think the same exists for adults. I mean, there's a good reason why, you know, it must go back to being cavemen and hunting. You know, you get that routine, you get your train and you get better at what you're doing. And when you're doing so many things yeah. and you're fucking yourself up a lot, well, you're borrowing from tomorrow. Exactly. So, so there's that, you know, that burning the candle at both ends sort of a thing that can only yeah. last for so long. What ways did you sort of struggle with that in? I think genuinely I'm pretty good and resilient and 
I've got good support around me to be able to go through life quite happy and and despite you know shocking things that might happen be able to look at the sky and see it as blue when it's blue and I don't have you know that dispense to you know see things other than what they are I've always used meditation and like from a very young age you know exercising the mind sharpening the mind but you know can't help but when things fall down sometimes things are out of your control did you have a point where you're like all right boys we need to stop touring for a while and get some structure definitely yeah but everyone has a breaking tour you can't no one tours continuously yeah yeah, definitely, definitely. And we had a great manager who used to, who was, you know, the management thing's so tricky because you're you're a babysitter as well as booking flights mm. and doing all that sort of stuff. It's a really tricky job, especially when you're dealing with three personalities that are really different. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. And I think we did well though. I mean, despite so eight years, you were doing that full on. So when did that wrap up? Well, in the middle of it, I moved to France for six months for a holiday kind of thing. But, again, things come up, opportunities come up with money or whatever and you get pulled away again. And then we moved to, I moved to LA for three years. Um, So that's when it sort of quieted down. And then when I came back, we started touring again a little bit. So it was a little bit on and off. It wasn't just like this constant eight years thing, but, the thing is about the populace that was interesting is that we could go to any club anywhere in Australia on a Friday and Saturday night and almost sell out, you know, it just it wouldn't matter throughout the year. So what we ended up doing, it wasn't like the populace would do a, a tour that lasted for two months. It was just in, it was just constant. Yeah. It was just like wherever you could rock up, you'd just be like, right, we're going to. We're going to play here. People are going to come. Ready to go. Yeah. And were you writing songs for other artists and, and doing other music at the same time? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So after, you know, the success of the first couple of songs that we did, I started working with great artists like Jessica Mowboy, just like once Tim O'Matic and, and Guy Sebastian, and, you know, whoever was there. You know, I was called in as a gun for hire. Remember um, this great songwriting duo, that's that are signed to Sony called DNA. I don't know if you know them, but they've written like three quarters of the hits that you hear, um, you know, Delta, Jessica Melbourne. And then they called me in to work with Ricky Martin and we worked with Ricky Martin while he's here for The Voice, wrote big kind of exciting tracks that, that did well that you start getting recognition for. And then moving to, to LA was really exciting, working with the crew, um, the, the social experiment with Chance the Rapper and then Rita Ora and Kygo and all these got Chris Brown and you cool. just never know who. But for the most part, you're in a room with writers, you know, and you're working with producers that work with the artists sort of thing. So it's not – so me personally, I didn't get to the point where like Sia or anything like that where they're being called in and the artists are working directly with them. Yeah. Um, but the artists would come in later once the song was kind of 90% done and put their kind of little touch to it. Awesome. That must have been cool seeing those artists, you know, bring what you've written to life. That must have been like a real joy to sort of see that. It's amazing. It's a thrill. It's a thrill. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, And what brought you and your wife together? 
um, languages. I studied language at university. I met her there. Um, and theatre. We met in a theatre production. How long were you guys together or was that? Uh, 21 years. And when did the your kids come onto the scene? Um, well, Sammy had a child, Remy, first, um, and he was three when I met Sammy, and then um, Gabe is now 18. With your relationship with her, um, was it clear to you that she was struggling or at, at certain times or did she hide it? Yeah, I mean, we were very communicative. You know, we spoke about things very openly. I think um, we had a great understanding, um, you know, be, but but that absence as well and that insecurity, I guess, that's fostered when, you know, you don't have that time together consistently. I'd go, especially living in, in LA was tricky because <clears throat> we had a mortgage over there and the money was really coming from live gigs because uh, and from publishing, but the publishing was kind of, it's always inconsistent. You know, once Spotify took over and the streaming system came in, uh, the money drops, obviously. Mm. Um, so I had to, you know, work. I had to do gigs um, and I'd be home for two weeks and then leave for three weeks and then home for a week then leave for a month and then come home for three weeks. And so that inconsistency about me being in L.A., while people would be like, oh, let's get Ilan in, oh, he's not here in Australia. The whole career as a writer in LA kind of dwindles a little bit too. You don't get called up as much, you know, obviously because you're not there. Mm. <clears throat> and, yeah, there, you know, Sammy was left in LA with our son, who's amazing, he's 18 now, he's a wonderful kid, um, and that brought its own pressures and Sammy stopped uh, sleeping consistently and that brought on you know, some pretty heavy things. Um, and you obviously would have been aware that that was happening while you were having to be pulled away here and there and, and, and be apart. Kind of, but kind of, but not till it was really too late, really. Yeah, and, and a mania kind of sits in and, yeah, it's complicated. You know, it's, it's a complicated one to talk about as well. And so um, what was that like for you when you were having to, you know, go away and make the money but, you're also having to be apart from your family and what sort of pressure did that put on you? A lot of pressure, <laughs> just a lot of pressure. And, and uh, um, uh, also being a dad was tricky as well. Um, I think it's something that is not rare when it comes to any father or mother that needs to go away to work. Um, <clears throat> I'd stop drinking and being, you know, loose by then anyway I'd kind of grown out of it so I was I was a bit of a fit boy so I was able to handle it a lot better yeah and then tragically of course she passed away um I think most people couldn't imagine being in that position especially when you've got young children to to look after as well uh what what did you do uh, it's just moment by moment um you're there just grief is weird because it's not in every day is very different um you're waking up in this kind of butterfly existence that's shaky um that sometimes lasts all day and then sometimes it abates and then slowly you know what happens is in your mind the thoughts of it kind of just become less and less and less over time but it can just strike you at any moment you know and i i cry a lot you know, I let it out. I let it out with people as well. Um, and yeah, I can't quite imagine it being your 
your wife and your partner, but I lost a friend to suicide. So I understand the feeling of it sort of coming in waves where initially it's very overwhelming and overpowering and then over time um, sort of just washes over you out of nowhere and you, you find yourself getting very upset and then you might go a longer period of time without thinking about it and something will sort of trigger you. I think washing over is a really good way to put it, but it's also you also learn how to ride it as well. If they're waves, you learn how to ride it and actually it's those feelings, I don't want to lose them either. Like that's the strange thing about it. I don't want to lose that grief. I want to hold on to it because it makes me feel close to, you know, to Sammy. The, the other thing I'd say, very I, I, I follow the Red Hand Files that Nick Cave writes. He writes this really cool, I suggest anyone out there um, to subscribe to it it's really great you should definitely subscribe to it um Callum because he people write in letters and he answers them and, and Nick had tragically lost his son to an accident um and he puts it really well when he says that you know it was no amount of words that people kind of share with you can fill a hole or nor do they make sense so when someone says oh she'll live on in your heart <clears throat> it, it means nothing I mean it's just like what it just makes no sense so what I kind of have done I think is create an imaginary version of her sometimes that I can talk to or ask questions to and sometimes I hear my reflection of her answer back you know so it's because like, you know knew her so well what she would have said Maybe I don't know how it happens, but there are inner inner dialogues, you know, that happen, and I and I've actually somehow created a, a, an imaginary version of her that who knows indeed might be her speaking through, but but you just don't know. And I guess you know? yeah, we all have to cope with things in in different ways, and especially yeah. things that are so horrendous. Um, and what about just the element of you having to be a father at that time as well? A father and a friend and somehow trying to wade through what is the questions that can't be answered. Because as a, as a father, you want to solve problems, right? You certainly don't want to create them. Um, and the, you want to you make things better. You want to heal your kids. But that's probably the hardest bit is not being able to answer the questions that are impossible to answer. What could I have done? Why did I do this? Um, what were the last, you know, few hours of her life like? You know, all these things that are just so torturous. And they have the same feelings. You know, it's only natural. And by the way, you know, we have apparently about 30,000 thoughts each a day. So I can never know, you know, exactly. You can never know someone actually is what, what it is, um, exactly how they, how they are. I think they're doing it great. I'm super proud of them. My, my kids just finished his HSC, done well, and, um, you know, next year is going to be full of adventures and then hopefully go to uni and, yeah, I think I think he's on a great road. I think Sammy would be super proud of what we're doing and, you know, and I'm filling my life with meaning and, um, you know, releasing this new song, Nothing is Impossible, you know, for a purpose rather than just like, a kind of ego scratch. This is my latest uh, invention. Have a listen. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully, get you know a million streams. Great. Um, but you know, doing stuff like what I'm doing, working with 
um, you know, institutions that try and improve disabled people's lives or, you know, it's, and, and the elderly. I've just started a website as well over COVID, um, which is full of content for, for the elderly who are trapped in their houses all around the world. So it's been good. Find ways to reinvent and find meaning. Yeah, so I was going to ask you how has going through all this changed you? Um, you learn that the most important part of things is for you to kind of forgive yourself um, for lots of things. Not, you know, you can never have the love of everyone, you know, in a situation like this. When someone suicides, it tends to split the family up massively. You have to keep it within context that it's like an earthquake. First there's the big shock of it all and then there's lots of little aftershocks that kind of just inevitably people look to blame or people look within themselves to blame them and it's just really fucked up and really strange. And out of that you grow a warmth, I think, and a, well, you could go either way. For me, I've looked for purpose and I've looked for, you know, every year now we raise money in Sammy's name. We raise $5,000 for, the, for um, the Charlie Teo Foundation this year. We'll do it again next year. I think it's a good sign to show people beauty can come from horror and things like that. And there's, you know, ways to work through life that make you stronger and make you better. Beautifully well said. That's very powerful and and what about your music obviously you you wrote an album during that grieving process that's going to be coming out pretty soon it's been wonderful focusing on something that doesn't include um two other artists like in the pop bellies it's been really something that i've really wanted to do come from so many different um genres i guess or schools of music that i like to to delve into world music and jazz and classical and rock and pop and all this stuff. So it's all kind of mixed into this. I think it's quite heartfelt and, and emotional journey. It's called chaos in the nightingale. Um, so it's been good to, to work with a few key people in my life that are there, like who've been on the journey with me as well. So what's the power of, of music as a, as a healing mechanism? It's definitely a balm for sure if that's what you're asking. I mean, music, I find when I'm writing the music or doing it, <clears throat> I kind of, I don't have that those emotionally explosive moments that you have when you're actually listening to someone else's song that resonates. When I'm working on music, I mean, it's rare that I'll write something and go, oh, my God, it's me there. You know, like that. it's more like listening to, to, you know, other artists or music that we used to listen to that conjure up beautiful memories or whatever. So emotionally it's strengthening, if anything. But I suppose you create those those moments or those reactions for other people that you might not even know about yeah. as well. I mean, we still get great, um, amazing messages through the pop on our Insta or wherever that, you know, thanks so much, you, you you pulled me out of some dark places or I proposed to my wife singing your song or our wedding waltz was this or whatever. And, uh, yeah, you become a part of people's lives. How are you seeing things now? <clears throat> um, softer. Um, challenging, though, as well. Throughout this period, you know, um, 
of being, you know, more isolation. It's been it's given us a chance to, you know, get closer here, but also just feel lucky that we live in Australia. I'm stoked. Spend most mornings down at the beach, um, just on my own or with some lads. Um, and then, you know, throughout the day, I'll have you know, songwriters come around or, uh, or just people who I'm working with project-wise. Yeah, exciting times. It's good. And is that really the stuff that's kept you going? Because it sounds like you've got quite a full life. Very full life. Things that have kept me going is, you know, my son's a super inspiration. I've got a lovely girlfriend who's very kind and, again, soft. She's an amazing person to live with. There's times when I'm really angry and, you know, can't understand what's going on and I lose lose it. But <clears throat> Yeah, I, I think, think you're, you're human, like aren't that. you? Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh yeah, I think I think routines definitely help me a lot. Like not being on the road is is amazing. I would not want to do that now. And I guess that's why, you know, labels they love signing really, really young acts because they're ready to go. Yeah. You know, they want to find 18 to 22 year olds that they can put on the road for 10 years. And so your new music, you've got a single new single out now, and then you've got your your new album coming out early next year. Yeah. Yeah, so Nothing Is Impossible uh, is by a, a secret little band that I muck around with called Glass Breakers, um, and that's in um, collaboration with an amazing charity called the Choice Foundation who fund other charities that help disabled people uh, find work, um, all sorts of programs. Unreal. In fact, tonight we're doing a little party um, that will be streamed live, I think. I don't know when this is going to be airing, but, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think that it's really important. I found myself watching a show called um, Camp Crip or Crip Camp and I found myself laughing at the wrong moments. It was just wrong, all wrong. So I wanted to do a bit of investigation. I found some people during COVID, some people who were involved <clears throat> in that and I wanted to explore why I was having these emotions and then through that I realised just how many unsung heroes there are in that community, parents that... Just you can't believe what they go through every day or the the, um, the people themselves that live with disabilities. What you want to do, you want to highlight their abilities as opposed to their disabilities because they're all very able in more ways than one, you know, to, you know, express themselves, to go through life um, uh, adding to the world and not just sapping it because of their disabilities. It's, it's And it's, it's just still atrocious at how we react to it. Mm. Oh, it's great that you had that self-reflection and then actually took that forward to to want to find out about it and do something with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wow, you seem like a really good-hearted person, and um, yeah, it's it's been a pleasure. Yeah, it's been a pleasure to talk to you, man. Uh, And um, thank you. And thank you also for opening up about that because yeah, incredibly difficult to talk about, especially in a public forum. So I just want to. Thank you for for being brave enough to do that. One thing that I would say just before we leave, um, that one, an important thing I've learned that if you do see signs of signs that there might be an impending kind of dangerous thing about to happen, act on it, you know, don't wait. And even if it's the fourth time of the fifth, just take it seriously and, um, and, uh, you know, you can do things, not just with words, obviously with actions and, and it does count. 
If you're a fan of the work we're doing or have a suggestion for the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment. You can follow Youngblood Men's Health Matters on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube and visit our website youngbloodmedia.com.au to stay up to date. And most importantly, if this conversation resonated with you, share it with someone you love and start a conversation of your own. A huge thank you to our local business supporters who've joined our mission to change the lives of young men for the better and help make this possible. We're all in it together. This is Youngblood. Thanks for being part of the mission. Catch you next time.